1: Christmas, Christmas cheer, we're moving into that season and it's a time of year when I think for a lot of us, the alcohol consumption increases. I know that that's true in my life and my friends and family members' lives because we're celebrating, right? But I kind of feel like at least in my own life, that celebrating just, it, it kind of has continued and spread into all the parts of the year, all of the seasons. Like what I'm getting at is that I wonder if sometimes maybe I drink too much. Well, I heard about a very influential uh, motivational speaker, uh, author, coach by the name of Andy Ramage. Now, he's a former pro-English footballer, and he created an app called Dry, D-R-Y-Y. That's how it's spelled. And he speaks about... Sobriety, And one of the things that that his angles, the way that he talks about it, is that um, giving up alcohol is for everyone, even for moderate drinkers. And it doesn't need to be this great big thing that and um, where you're, you know, it's a real problem in your life. It doesn't have to be that. And he's really talks about the improvements that you will get from giving up alcohol. And I was kind of taken with that. Like, who doesn't want better sleep and more productivity at work or in your family life or uh, maybe in a sport. That you play. So I was really taken with his message and he's very engaging. So I had a chance um, to interview him and uh, we're going to play that interview now in two parts. And I'd love to know what you think of it. You can weigh in any time. Uh, you can text 604-331-BUZZ. That's the buzz line. You can text or you can email me Scott at CKNW.com. But I started off just by asking Andy how this all happened for him. And Andy, why did you quit booze? I think
2: I reached my mid-30s a bit of an epiphany moment where I was a bit overweight, inconsistent in the way I exercised, inconsistent in the way that I ate. My career felt a bit flat. Relationships were okay. I just thought, what is that? What's going on? I actually at first thought, oh, maybe this is middle age. Maybe this is how you're supposed to feel. And then, of course, I I lifted up all the rocks. I tried exercise. Didn't really work. Tried nutrition. Didn't really work. Tried ice baths. The last rock that I ever lifted, which I think is the story for most people, was alcohol. And I wasn't a problematic drinker. I was a middle lane drinker, someone that would drink averagely, moderately, sometimes heavily, sometimes not at all, which is basically everyone on the planet right now, what about 75% of the adult population. And I lifted up that alcohol rock and decided to take a break initially for 28 days. I felt incredible, like game-changingly incredible. It was like, why didn't I do this years ago? Time came flooding back. Energy came flooding back. I got my oomph, my bounce, my zest, the life back. And I just thought, this is so cool. I'm going to keep going. And that was almost 10 years ago in
1: March. Wow. And uh, I mean, the way you describe it, it it sounds so great. And I mean, who who wouldn't want that? And I think for so many of us, we we do know that booze is like, it's not great. You know, uh, me and my friends, we kind of joke that, you know, in 20 years from now, we're going to look at alcohol the way that, you know, my generation looks at smoking, you know, how could, how could we have knowingly put this stuff that is so bad for us in our bodies yet? I think for so many people, it's just such a hard thing to give up, like having this conversation around, yeah, maybe I'm going to like try doing, you know, sober October or sober January or or maybe even longer. I'm going to give up booze for the summer. It For whatever reason, societally, that feels like we're giving up a part of ourselves and like a, giving up something that's so fun. And it, why is that so hard for us to give up this thing when we know it's so bad for us?
2: Yeah, and it's really interesting because you said the word give up. About three or four times there. And I think that is the cultural view of alcohol, isn't it? It's like you drink unless you've got a problem. And if you haven't got a major problem, then why wouldn't you drink, right? Because it's fun and it's amazing. And, you know, if anyone takes a break, they're giving something up. Hmm. But are you? This is the big reflection. Are you really giving anything up? What are you actually giving up? And for those, again, and everyone's got a different relationship with alcohol, but let's just say where I was in my mid-30s at the time and now you know, into my sort of latter 40s, I was tired all the time. I had anxiety the following day. I was rubbish at my job. I was a broker in the city, run a big financial brokerage in the city. Everyone said you would fail, you'd be doomed if you stopped drinking. But I was terrible at my job. I was anxious. I was fearful the following day. I wasn't as much fun. I wasn't enjoying life as much. My spark had started to fade a little bit. As mentioned, I wasn't ever exercising consistently because the hangover grenade would destroy that. I'd eat rubbish food because I was hungover. I'd wake up sometimes with shame, regret, guilt, doing fake things that I wouldn't normally do. What is there to give up about that? Nothing, in my opinion. And then of course, when you come to the fun side of the island, as I like to describe it, By taking a break from alcohol, you realize, actually, I'm not giving anything up. All I'm giving up is the tiredness, the anxiety, the can't be botheredness. And actually, I'm gaining so much more. I'm getting my time back, my energy back. I'm 10 times better at my job. I'm consistent in the way that I'm exercising, consistent in the way that I'm nourishing my body. My relationships are 10 times better because my temperament's consistent again. I'm excited about life again. That is what you're gaining. So there's nothing to give up and everything to gain. That's the message I've been trying to get out there really for the last 10 years.
1: Yeah. And with the way you talk about it, it really feels like this this paradigm shift of, cause you're right. I, I say it without even knowing it that I'm saying, give up, give up, give up. And in reality, you're like, oh, we're gaining, we're gaining. Like the reason that I listened to your podcast with Rich Roll in the very first place, I, you know, he has these little clips on his Instagram and you talk about um, the sleep aspect, you know, and it, the reason that it hit me was just, if that's the only thing that I get back from – from, if that's the only benefit that I see from quitting booze, that's enough because the difference that a good night's sleep makes – and, of course, the benefits are so much more than just that. But if it's just that, I would do it. Like if someone said to me, you can trade in booze for a solid sleep every night right now, I would do it. We're talking about giving up. Alcohol. It's Christmas, and alcohol is very popular. It's like everywhere you go, people are celebrating. Christmas cheer, and I get that. I really want to do that. I'm part of that. I had a couple of beers last night. But I heard a really great interview with a man named Andy Ramage. He's a former English footballer. He's a stockbroker. And he founded the Dry app about giving up alcohol, even just as a, as a moderate drinker. He said it was never a problem for him. But the reason that he gave it up was because it exponentially helped him become a better employee, family member, athlete, all of these other things that he wanted to do. And he's talking about how that holds us back. Now, one of the elements that I asked him about is the social setting, because we all agree that alcohol is a huge part of our social life. So what was that like, uh, you know, when all of your friends are still drinking and you're not? How did that affect your, your social life?
2: Yeah. And, and imagine this was 10 years ago. So this was before it was a thing and there was no alcohol free alternatives then. So I found it really difficult in those early stages. Like alcohol is the only drug in the world when you try and give it up. People berate you for doing so, isn't it? It's the only thing if you walk into a bar of friends and say, I'm not drinking tonight, watch people come out en masse and try and twist your arm into doing something you've just said, I don't really want to do It doesn't happen with anything else, does it? If you think about recreational drugs or smoking, no one tries to twist your arm into that, but with alcohol, we have this weird thing. So it was really difficult. Um, I'll own that at the start, but actually what started to change, I said I was going to do a little challenge, so it was like, look, I'm just taking a break, so that took some of the pressure away from my friends and peers and colleagues, because in their minds, they were going to get their drinking buddy back in 28 days or 90 days, but I sort of secretly knew if I I enjoyed this and I got great results from it, which I did, I'd probably just keep going, but that really helped, so that's a top tip for anyone listening, just make it a short break, it's just 28 days, right, tell your friends, your family, your colleagues you'll get me back in 28 days and then experience what it's like and I think what's changed dramatically and bearing in mind you know I've been in this space for the last 10 years and seen it when no one really cared to where it's getting really exciting now the alcohol free alternatives are incredible athletic brewing is one of the big ones that I think you guys will get um Bill Shufelt I know the owner of that it's an incredible brand they stocked everywhere. There's alcohol-free alternatives in every bar, restaurant, and club now. So you get the opportunities to still be super social, to have that placebo of a drink that looks like everyone else's. You don't stand out like a sore thumb. And I think that takes some of that social pressure away. And then what becomes even more powerful is when you can still show up and have fun have the banter with people, you can drive home if you like, you wake up the next day with more energy, more time, so you can connect with people in a completely different way. And people see that, they feel that, that is such a powerful message. Yes, there might be a bit of ribbing at the start from friends and colleagues and family because they don't quite get it, but know in your heart that actually, this is not about giving something up, this is gaining a massive advantage. It's like a superpower.
1: Oh, I love I love to hear it framed that way and I think yeah it it is this like I said it's this paradigm shift you know like you say in the podcast that I keep referencing that it's um it's like um how oh, you keep saying it not giving something up but but getting something back but just that yeah the we we want it to be that the cool thing is like, oh, look at, look we think like, oh, look at these guys. They're drinking. Oh, I can't wait until I'm of age until I can drink and stuff. To, sh- to shift that, to be like, oh my gosh, this is so cool that they were able to give it up. And this is so cool that they've taken, you know, like make that the cool sort of rebellious sort of, you know, outside, how how we can shift that idea. But another thing that I want to ask you about, so if there's people listening, and because I think you mentioned this as well, that even to get to that first sort of milestone that you did of 28 days took a couple of tries. So maybe talk about how, you know, because I think people are thinking, oh, a year, like there's the year no beer challenge and 90, you know, it, that feels like a long time and feels kind of daunting for people. So um, the way that you say you kind of frame it as just I'm taking a break and it, I don't know, maybe giving up it entirely feels like a big step. So if people are listening to this and they're kind of curious, you know, there's that term sober curious. Um, how how yeah. could somebody get started? What's like an effective way to get started with giving up booze?
2: Yeah. So I have a brilliant app. It's free as well. It's called Dry with an extra Y. So D-R-Y-Y, wherever you get your apps from, we're live in there every day, which is incredible. Because I think one of the big things about taking a break from alcohol, and let's frame it as that, just 28 days, is it's often a solo mission. What I mean by that is you'll probably find that most of your friends, colleagues, and family members are still drinking. So I think the online community is unbelievable now. We have people from all over the globe, for example, in our groups, because there's a space where people get you and understand you. I think that's really important. So I think a top tip, if you're thinking about this, because you'll probably be surrounded by people that are still drinking, is to find your tribe, your community online. I think that's really beneficial. And then don't wait for the perfect moment, because you can always wait for, oh, I'll just wait till after the birthday or the Christmas do or the leaving do. But actually what I've found is in taking on some of those big social events and not drinking are some of the most powerful moments you'll ever experience. That time when you go to the Christmas do and you have a great time and you drive home and you wake up the next day feeling full of energy and power because you did something only minutes ago you thought you couldn't do, there's there's something wonderful about that. There's momentum in that. The first time you dance sober. Like that's a massive <laughs> you know, I got yeah. That was like my biggest fear. My biggest fear when I stopped drinking was how on earth am I going to dance at weddings? (laughs) I'm not even sure if it's legal for a middle-aged ginger man to dance at weddings, but I did it. You know, and you overcome those things and you become stronger and more resilient for it. So I think the top tip is look at the alcohol-free alternatives. They're stocked everywhere now. They're incredible. They taste amazing. They feel grown up. There's great placebo around it. Tell your friends. You're doing a little challenge, so they're going to get you back. I'm just doing 28 days or whatever it looks like. Find your community. Dry with the extra Y is One of them that's brilliant. There's some wonderful communities around. And then get excited. Focus on the wins. What are you gaining from this? Not what you're losing. What are you gaining? Have you got more time? Are you sleeping better like you described? Have you got more energy? Is your skin starting to glow? Are your eyes bright again? Are you better at your job? Are your relationships improving. Every single thing that you do in life will get better for that alcohol-free adventure. Stay focused on the wins. That's the, the top few tips.
1: Sure, yeah, that's wonderful um, Andy Ramage, thank you so much for your time uh, The app in the App Store, Dry with an extra Y D-R-Y-Y And andyramage.com There's all sorts of resources there I'll link it all on, on my Twitter account ScottonAir.com. And uh, Andy, thank you, A, for spending some time with me this morning And also for the work that you're doing Because this is a, a real thing And it's a challenge for a lot of people And just even having a few minutes to talk with you I'm encouraged, and you make it seem a doable, b worthwhile, and c like fun and exciting.
2: Thank you, my man. Enjoy.
1: This is Mornings with Simi. Let's turn to the view from Victoria with the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer. Good morning, Vaughn, and good morning, Scott. How are you?
3: Oh, I'm great. I'm great. The uh, legislature wraps up the fall session today because the government has said that's what's going to happen. They imposed the schedule, and now they've been using their majority to cut off further debate on all these major housing bills that we have before the House.
1: Yeah, there is a bunch that are still before the House. So there's like a shift in power from local government to provincial government.
3: Yeah, I mean... The previous uh, B.C. Liberal government sometimes didn't even have fall sessions of the legislature because they had so little to say. But uh, the New Democrats are very, very active. The premier has been promising legislation that will lead to more affordable housing and an increase in the housing supply. And we got the bills uh, legislation this fall. But uh, it's a work in progress to be generous. It's a bit of a rush job to be critical. A lot of the legislation, there are outstanding questions about what it means, things they haven't explained, claims they've made they can't back up. And so, yeah, the opposition parties have been trying to get to the bottom of all this. The government has just finally lost patience. There's a, there's a power in the legislature uh, to cut off debate. Uh, it's called the guillotine, Good name for it. Yesterday afternoon, if you heard a whoosh around 3.30, that was when, as one member of the opposition put it, the B.C. legislature reached its Robespierre moment. Uh, Around 3 o'clock, the housing minister, Ravi Kallon, who is also the House leader for the uh, New Democrats, brought in a motion to cut off debate on the biggest and most important of the housing bills and to do it within 30 minutes. So there was no time left to debate it. That's Bill that they cut off debate on at 3:30 yesterday afternoon. That's the one, Scott, that is at the center of the change. The provincial government will take control of zoning for housing in 85 British Columbia cities and towns. So pretty much everywhere but rural BC. And the way they'll do it is they're going to end single-family zoning, and all those municipalities, they're going to bring in new rules that say you can build, develop up to six-unit multiplexes on some lots, triplexes, fourplexes, six-unit multiplexers on some lots. And I think most local councils are going, understandably, this is an enormous transfer of power. How is it going to work and the government has withheld all kinds of key details about how it's going to work. They've just slammed blank check legislation through. Wait for the details later.
1: Yeah, it really feels like um, here's the answer. We're going to fix this problem for you, and we'll just, we'll just do this. We'll build six plexes on every lot in the province, and we're just going to say— But of course, there's a ton of questions that come with that. And if they're not willing to answer them, I mean, like, what about the infrastructure that goes around all of these type of houses? I mean... I, I lived in a strata complex and, you know, it was very clear that adding any more, it was like a sixplex and adding any more units there, like we were dealing with one of the things, one of the things was a person got an electric car and then another person got an electric yep. car. And then next thing you know, we needed to dig up the entire road to put more electricity to this sixplex. What happens if every lot is a sixplex? It, there's know, a lot of questions.
3: You, you, yeah, you've hit, I mean, the dilemma for mayors and councilors is they know very well that the public wants more housing and they want it easier to approve housing. So that's the world they're into. But they also say, look, most municipalities have zoning. Uh, A lot of that zoning is tailored to the situation in the municipality. A lot of it allows for the fact that we need, as you say, infrastructure to go along with it. And they keep asking Victoria House is going to work. And, you know, the answer they get is, well later this year, and there's only a month left in the year, (laughs) uh, the government is going to put out uh, the actual regulations for all this new zoning. And then municipalities have until the end of June to change all their zoning, some of which has been around for years, to accommodate the new provincial government approach. And I mean, I've talked to mayors and counselors who go, look, you can agree with the objective and still have profound doubt that the bureaucracy in the provincial government, which has never dealt with local zoning before, knows how to rewrite the zoning laws for 85 towns and cities and make it happen by the end of next June. Like it's just smacks of rush job and half-baked. And all of the attempts now by the opposition parties and the Greens and BZ United, both have been pushing this, all their attempts to get some answers on this, they cut it off yesterday afternoon. The other bills, some of which are important as well, the cutoff will happen today. The legislature will adjourn because that's what the government says at the end of uh, the afternoon today. And then we'll just have to wait for the details because they won't. Tell us what they are.
1: And we're continuing our chat with Vaughn Palmer, and uh, we're having some more trouble on BC Ferries, Vaughn.
3: Uh, yes, we are. Uh, and we should go back to the housing numbers, too. But uh, yeah, BC Ferries uh, Coastal Renaissance, one of the big vessels that runs between the island and the mainland, has uh, been out of service since August for engine trouble. They told us, ah, oh, it'll be back in service before Christmas. Yesterday, the ferry is not coming back. Uh, There's still problems with it. Uh, Probably won't be available till the new year, so that means we're going to have to navigate the holiday season without a key vessel on the run. Uh, As you know, uh, BC Ferries has said many times, they don't have a lot of backup vessels. They're going to build some. They still haven't awarded the contracts to do that, and we're some years away from taking delivery. So, you know, we've seen this year that... Pretty much everybody who travels on the ferries, except on whim, uh, makes a reservation that is going to be even more important than ever. And I guess some of us who live on Vancouver Island kind of always say, well, you know, the continent is cut off. It's not we're cut off. So <laughs> you try to keep your sense of humor about you. But but seriously, um, it's been well over a year since the New Democrats fired the CEO of BC ferries and installed their own team there, but uh, they haven't turned it around. I guess you're going to have to give them more time because the uh, troubles continue, the service interruptions. They, they're putting other ships into service to try to pick up some of the
1: slack, but I
3: think it's going to be a very congested holiday season on BC ferries.
1: Yeah. And I mean, we do have this new ferry service. Hello. But, I mean, BC Ferries being the main—essentially, it's kind of the only option. Like, if you need to drive, I mean, there's options with Helijet and that type of thing as well. But, I mean, what are you going to not—are you going to not take BC Ferries? That's what I always say when I hear somebody, you know, kind of complain about it. It's like, well— you have to, you have, we don't have another option. We got to, we got to get on it. Like I have family over there. And so when we take the kids and load the car up and stuff, even we, we will make a reservation and then pull up and the, that sailing is canceled. You know, like it's just such a mess. Yeah. I mean the line over here on the
3: Island, uh, and on any other, uh, coastal community served by ferries is it's the highway system. Yeah. And sure. The highway system does have problems too on occasion, but uh, still, no, it, it's the reliability of the ferry service has been greatly undermined this year. And I have to say uh, to anybody thinking of traveling the ferries, I see the Ferry Workers Union put out a statement yesterday saying uh, their talks with the ferry corporation are troubled. Uh, they left a meeting uh, this week because it was, uh, ferries management was getting abusive. Now that's the union side of the story, but uh, those talks were launched by the ferry corporation to reopen the contract because they wanted to add incentives to recruit staff to the ferries so this constructive purpose of these talks is to make the ferries a more attractive place to work uh, the latest breakdown in those talks they appear to be heading the wrong direction there too so i mean we'll wait and see what the ferry corporation says about it But the union statement, I have to say, having read it, it circulated to members yesterday, is not encouraging.
1: Yeah. Okay. Pack your patience if you have to use BC ferries. Uh, Let's talk back about um, housing and housing numbers and, and the legislation there.
3: So the government, by way of justification for all this housing legislation they've given us, has made two extraordinary claims. One, they say that the housing legislation, the main bill, will lead to the creation of 130,000 new multi unit homes over 10 years. That's a big number. And the second thing they've said is that it will lead as well to a reduction in housing prices by 7 to 14 percent. Now, when you get those kind of numbers from the government, the opposition, of course, says, you just pick this out of the air or have you got some basis for it? And the government mm-hmm. says, oh, no, you know, the housing minister, Kyle, we've got an economic model that explains all this. Okay, can we see it? No, you can't. <laughs> they, they won't release the model until later. And what that means is the legislature is being forced by the government majority to approve all this legislation it can't debate the model because the government won't release it publicly. So we'll have to wait. Again, they say we'll get it before the end of the year. But I have heard from all over the housing sector and local councils, Scott, a 7 to 14% drop in housing prices in BC. Right. Nobody believes that's going to happen. They really can't wait to see the model because... That just doesn't happen in British Columbia. Yes, prices slow. Yes, they may waver a little bit. But anybody who's been in and out of the market over the years knows that it. what tends to happen is prices rise steeply, then they level off for a bit, and then they start <laughs> rising steeply again, because there's so much demand for housing in British Columbia. And the supply as the government itself admits uh, Scott, the supply just isn't there
1: right and I mean you could we could run the math a simple math equation and just add up all the prices of the last sold homes, add one hundred and thirty thousand to that and then redivide the equation and it goes down by seven to fourteen percent but yeah. that's we all know that's not the reality that's not how no. this works um, one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting though you know when they when the, this this idea was brought up of Six-unit dwellings, because one of the things you hear talked about so much in Vancouver is developers, and you know developers do this, and it makes it harder for you know one person to say I wanted to tear down a house and build a sixplex there and yeah. rent to my family and friends. But developers end up taking all of that, and I think like there maybe is some uh, feeling that those people are going to end up making a whole bunch more money. The same people who've already profited off the housing sector are just going to continue to profit off of this.
3: Scott, you've identified one of the real ironies of the debate around here, because when you criticize all of this legislation for all the holes in it and the rush job putting it out and ramrodding it onto local councils, the New Democrats say, oh, well, you're just playing into the hands of the developers. You know, you're just out there with the developers. You just want to, you know, and and you go, wait a minute. I'm not hearing huge complaints about this from the development community. Mm What I'm hearing is people like Andy Yan at Simon Fraser University saying, you are going to end up leading to dem evictions. You're going to lead to low-rise apartment buildings uh, being demolished to build 20-story towers around transit stations. Uh, What I'm hearing is local councils are worried that they're going to rewrite their zoning legislation. And once they do, there's no more public hearings. So their constituents are going to discover that a sixplex is going up across the street when the construction crews arrive there because the New Democrats are bringing an end to public hearings on individual projects. Once the community housing plan is approved, anything that fits the plan goes ahead without public hearings. Now, I can imagine developers smacking their lips at that prospect, but I don't think neighborhood advocates or people who don't have a money stake in the housing market. I even see how some homeowners are are going, well, okay, this is going to be great. There's my retirement plan. I'm going to Sell my house, have it knocked down, and uh, go somewhere
1: else. Well, exactly, and you know, you use the term eviction. That's like that's the first thing I thought about when it was, you know, and we, that's already been a problem in Vancouver. And they're just yeah. going to give people more opportunities to do. The people who already have a stake will make more, and you know, maybe we'll see a slight drop for for rentals, like we talked about. But we know that's not the reality. But It will be an interesting thing to watch. The Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer, great to speak with you. And uh, thanks for your take on this and and some explanation and understanding it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. And we're going to be busy with this story next year because it's election year. Fantastic. All right. We'll talk again soon, Vaughn. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. How would you feel about AI Artificial intelligence writing your news. A lot has been made of AI and its future implications uh, in the last year. You know, ChatGPT dropped like a bomb, and everyone started using it. And what happens when this really gets into into the you know the workplace and the workforce, and it starts like actually trying to replace humans. Well, that has actually apparently been happening at one major publication already. Uh, Simon Haupt is a sports reporter for The Globe and Mail, and he joins us now. Simon, tell me about what's been happening at Sports Illustrated.
4: Uh, good morning, Scott. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's kind of crazy. Uh, you know, earlier this summer, there was a reporter with the science tech news website, uh, Futurism. Uh, they noticed there were some odd things that were appearing on the website of Sports Illustrated. Uh, particularly in the product review, you get kind of the, the, you know, the sports apparel and, 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 uh, you know, volleyballs and that kind of stuff. Uh, there were these product reviews that were appearing under the byline of someone who didn't seem to have any other online presence. There was no social media for this reporter, no articles anywhere else. And what was also strange and telling was that this reporter or, or writer also seemed to have an author photo, that, you know, like a headshot, that was actually for sale on a website that sold stock photographs that were generated by AI. OK, so uh, and and it got stranger over this, over the uh, uh, following months, those bylines and the photos disappeared and were then replaced by other bylines and photos uh, atop the same articles. Uh, and these same these bylines and photos were also of people who also did not seem to exist. So no explanation was given for the kind of shifting, weird bylines. This came after. A bunch of people have been laid off at Sports Illustrated. So, Futurism did some reporting uh, and spoke with people who they said had knowledge of the fact that the articles were actually generated by AI.
1: Wow. Okay. So, this to me feels like pretty substantial. Like, Sports Illustrated is one of the biggest, most well known publications in the world.
4: It is. It's an iconic brand, of course. Uh, you know, it's been around since the mid fifties. Uh it has published some of the greatest writers, not just sports writers, but you know, greatest yeah. writers uh in, in the world. It's won a bunch of national magazine awards in the States, you know, uh at its height. It had uh, uh, circulation of about four million in North America. This is an iconic very important brand that we're talking about.
1: And for them to, I mean, have they admitted that this is, that yes, this is what has happened. Like what is their response to this? Like we are using AI or we're incorporating it, or that was a mistake. How how are they responding?
4: That's a great question. You know, what's interesting is, uh, you know, in this particular case, uh, you know, futurism did confront uh, sports illustrated, uh, who instead of responding deleted the articles from their site entirely And then later, and all this happened kind of earlier this week on Monday, there was a flurry of activity. So the company finally did reply, saying the articles uh, had been actually uh, produced by a third party. There was like this marketing agency uh, named AdVon Commerce, and uh, they were looking into the allegations. Um, And and AdVon has uh, publicly admitted previously that a lot of their business model is based on uh, AI-generated content. So... um, And and again, the company that runs Sports Illustrated actually earlier this year, because they also have a bunch of other brands, including like Men's Journal. They had given uh, uh, an interview to the Wall Street Journal back in February where they said, we're going to be using A.I., to produce uh, some articles, and in fact, they even gave some examples of pieces that they'd already published. They were like, you know, pieces on the Men's Journal uh, website uh, that had mined the archives of Men's Journal, you know, like fitness tips for, you know, how to sure. exercise uh, over age 40. These, these are kinds of uh, evergreen things that you could publish every year, and basically they kind of sent a machine into the archives, and it produced uh, some very clumsily written uh, fitness tips.
1: Yeah. So, okay. So it makes sense that, that they would be doing this now. Uh, the fact that first of all, they, they pass the buck and say, this is like a, we, we hired somebody else to generate these, these articles for, is that something that happens in print journalism? I've never even heard of that. Isn't the whole idea that I'm buying sports illustrated because I want to hear those writers. If I wanted to hear someone else or read someone else, I would just buy that magazine.
4: Fair enough. I mean, that's that's a great question, but uh, you know, lots of publications, um, radio stations do it, TV stations do it. They basically will kind of effectively sell the space that they have sure, yeah. to a marketing agency. So this is something. This in, in this particular case, we're talking about something that in, in the industry is called custom content, which is basically advertising, right? So a lot of uh, these examples. Were as I say, product reviews. If you click through, uh, you know, unlike the the article that talks about great volleyballs, ranked the top seven volleyballs, you click through to Amazon, and then both Sports Illustrated and Advon Commerce would get a cut of uh, whatever money amazon uh you know then made from the sale of volleyballs
1: right yeah and that, you're right i do see that happening all the time so maybe we'll end with this but ha- like how are people responding to it as has sales gone down for sports illustrated i know that advan they had a huge dip on their share price but like are people gonna you know still remain loyal to a magazine oh. that is knowingly putting out ai articles
4: I think this one dropped like a bomb. Uh, and, uh, you know, people are increasingly skeptical anyway of media. This is not helping. Uh, you know, it was it was striking to me that, uh, I guess, yesterday Merriam-Webster announced that the word of the year is authentic. People are confused. They don't know what to believe on social media. Even for reporters, it's hard to determine the truth of what's being published. And uh, this is, unfortunately, only going to get worse, um, especially if there are... Uh, legitimate brands that are, that are doing this kind of thing. You know, the first rule of journalism is don't lie to your readers. And, uh, you know, we really need to yeah. <laughs> so make sure that, that, that our, our audience knows uh, we are telling the truth and, uh, uh, and that, you know, to go to outlets that, uh, you know, find that as a primary value, not to lie, you know, just to tell the truth.
1: Simon Haupt is a sports reporter for the Globe and Mail. Thanks so much for helping us uh, understand and unpack what's been happening there. Thanks, Scott. This is mornings with Simi. Do you feel like you want to get more protein in your diet? Like maybe you need to change some things, get some healthier options. And you also are aware of your carbon footprint. Uh, what do you do about that? Have you considered adding bugs to your diet? This is a real thing. UBC, they just hosted their bug bake off. Basically, they had a cooking competition and you had to include insects. In your dishes. Now, there are all sorts of ways that people do this. You've heard probably like chocolate covered ants, you know, like that. I think that's a very um, common one that we've heard of. Also, people who mill insects uh, into flour and use that in baking. But this is uh, apparently a growing trend, and more and more people are taking to it. Uh, and so, here now to help us understand a bit more of it is Dr. Yasmin Akhtar, Sessional Lecturer of Land and Food Systems at UBC, and also an advocate of entomophagy. Which is means you eat bugs. You're, would we say, Doctor Akhtar, an entomophagist?
5: Well, you can say entomologist.
1: Okay, great. <laughs> also covered that. And so, uh, are you one of these people? Do you eat bugs? Yes, I do eat bugs. Yes. And is that, it's just as simple as saying that, or do you, is there a different way that you would describe it as, you know, I use bugs in cooking or, like, explain what that looks like for you, how bugs are an addition to your diet.
5: Well, I add them into, uh, I use them like as insect flour, and I use them for baking many things, for baking like cookies, for baking like cakes. And they can also be added. The flour can also be added to make samosas, and uh, and other things. You can know. you can add them to your green tea. You know, a powder mm-hmm. of crushed insects can be added to your green tea. You can you can also add them to fried rice, and I mean you can incorporate insects in many ways. You know, and that would reduce the fear people have against the bugs because. People eat all kinds of seafood, you know. They eat, like, spiders. They eat, like, crabs. But for some reason, there's a disgusting factor uh, against the insects, you know. And, they, and it is considered as, like, disgusting, you know.
1: Yeah. So, I, I, why do you think <laughs> that that is? When we know that there are cultures all over the world that do this. And to your point, why is... One you know thing sort of okay, and another thing isn't. Um, we just sort of have this kind of ick feeling about it bugs. Feelings. When yes. in reality, it could be a, a really helpful solution to a whole lot of problems that we have as yes. a society. You're right. You're yeah. right. You know, uh,
5: I think it is just cultural. You know, because uh, it has been shown that in plant tasting, people enjoy the taste and texture of the insect if prepared well. But I think it is just cultural. You know, they think they are. Creepy crawlies. They think that they are, you know, vectors of diseases. They annoy you by their buzz and bites, you know, and they are they act as best, you know, they compete with you for your food, you know, so for some reason, you know, they, there are some negative perception about about the insects, you know, and eating them, you know, it's a big thing for them but if we can incorporate insects into different forms in the food, they may not even know that the whole insects are there, you know, because they are scared of mainly because of the whole insects flying around and bothering them, but if we can incorporate insects in the form of a powder or trash powder or insect protein into into the dishes. They may not even know and they will still enjoy the
1: benefits, you know? Yeah, like I think that there are probably a lot of things that we consume that we have no idea what's, yes, what's right. in it, we you know? So
5: are...
1: <laughs> I don't think, like, let me ask you this. When you create or make, you know, cookies or samosas or any of those things that you talk about with bugs in them and say you serve it to a guest, do you make sure to tell the guest or do you just, nope, this is what I made and here's what's in it and they don't ask? No,
5: I... I think it is important to tell the guests you know and uh, and uh, you know and uh, if they like they eat it and i'm sure they cannot differentiate between between the cookies that contain the insect flour or that does not contain the insect flour you know because because with insects you know they are like to the food they absorb the flavor of the spices or or whatever thing we add to them you know and I think it is important to t- tell the people and then I think that will be very good Then they can make their choice later on, you know, because I'm sure by knowing the benefits of the insect, nutritional, environmental benefits of the insect, I'm sure they are going to they are going to start eating insects, you know, and make them as part of their daily diet, like other people, you know, who are eating them.
1: Yeah. And how do you feel that you're by eating an insect Diet or having that added has it ch- like health benefits? Has it changed the way you feel? Uh, do you feel like you know maybe there's some, some element of eating clean in eating insects? You know they're not raised uh, in factory farms or anything like that. How do you feel uh, eating insects? Well, uh, well,
5: the thing is, you know that uh, it is not good to get them from the wild. You know, so if we get them from an insect farm, you know we are sure that they are reared in a clean environment, mm, yeah. and that they are not exposed to microorganisms. And we know that they they are safe to be consumed, but getting them from the wild, you know, it's not safe to use the insects because they may be infested with microorganisms, they may be contaminated with insecticides. Or, or other toxins, you know, such as heavy metals, you know. So it is always good to make sure that we are getting them from, from a good source, you know, from a reliable source like an insect farm. Sure.
1: Know. Already uh, an organic version of getting, getting yes, bugs for right. your food. Yes, I like right. it. Yes. I, think, I, I think I would be very open to trying it. Uh, Dr. Yes, Yasmeen Akhtar, uh, she's a sessional lecturer of land and food systems at the University of British Columbia and also an advocate of entomophagy. Thanks so much for your time this morning and okay, uh, happy so bug eating. Thanks again. Okay, Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the opioid crisis. This is a thing that everyone in Vancouver and the lower mainland, I think as well, is aware of. And it's been a difficult thing to treat. Um, we've lost a lot of lives to it. There's a lot of frustration around it. And BC has released new treatment guidelines and if we want to talk about that and how that's going to work and what that looks like so here now to help us sort of unpack that is dr paxton bach co-medical director for the british columbia center on substance use good morning dr bach how are you morning scott thanks for having me uh yeah, of course. Now, my uh, just from looking at these regulations or these guidelines so far, uh, sort of my main takeaway here is this is a basically a move away from fixed medication categories and and limits to individual approached um uh dosing like based on individual patient needs.
6: Yeah, I mean, this is there's
1: there's 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 a lot
6: contained in in our new guidelines. This is being the product of Four years of work now. It, it was it was somewhat delayed by COVID, and has really been uh, a, a, an incredible effort by a group of, of health experts from around the province, um, and makes uh, a whole host of new recommendations around updating. Uh, evidence-based treatment for people with opioid use disorder. But you're right, one of the themes that I hope really cuts through the entire document is the idea of really collaborative decision-making and patient-centered care and helping people find um, the medications or approaches that suit their needs at any given moment to keep them safe and well.
1: Yeah, and the, uh, another one of the things is that, like a lot of the, um, the the limits, the upper end of the limits for, for example, how much methadone could be prescribed, that number has gone up.
6: Yeah, and in a sense, the the, the reality is is that in the current environment, um, and this is an unprecedented environment, the traditional approaches to treating opioid use disorder um, that are based off of sixty years of, of research, uh, we're we're just finding more and more that, that when faced with with the, the the incredibly volatile and potent drug supply that we're dealing with now, that we really needed to scramble and update. Um, and update our traditional approaches in order to better serve people in, in the current context.
1: Okay, can you give me like a, an idea of what it would look like if a person wanted to get treatment for an opioid addiction? Where, where do they start? Like how does that process begin, and how does it get determined? how much methadone or treatment they they get?
6: Sure. Well, so for, for starters, I'd say that treatment for every individual is going to look a bit different depending on their individual circumstances, goals, needs, and preferences. Um, certainly, opiate agonist treatment with medications like methadone and suboxone are really one of the cornerstones. They're some of the best evidence medications we have in all of medicine. Um, and and we, we know very well that they help prevent um, uh, harms associated with opiate use, uh, overdose deaths, uh, and improve quality of life as a whole. So certainly, that's often a starting place. Um, Somebody might access a physician through uh, an addiction medicine uh, clinic, through their family physician, through an emergency room. Um, we will talk to them about the different options that are out for them, about the different characteristics of these options, and what might suit their needs the best. And then we'll we'll, we'll choose a medication, we'll start it together, and we'll increase that dose um, over time until until their needs are met and it's it, it's doing what it's what it's supposed to do. At which point, we can really step back and look at kind of the broader picture. Uh, other things that that they may need to to, to access in order to help treat um, their use, including everything from from counseling or, or trauma therapy to housing um, to um, um, returning to 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 work or volunteer volunteer organizations. There's, you know, it looks a bit different for every every individual, but but certainly that initial stabilization and medication is a really critical part. Um, and that's one of the things that these guidelines really speak to.
1: Okay. And how often d- would a person in that scenario uh, end up relapsing? What can you speak to that?
6: Yeah, I mean that's that's a, a, a deceptively difficult question to answer. It, re- it really does depend. Um, so it depends on an individual, on on the on the, the approach that we're taking, and hopefully these guidelines really do. Um, Represent a leap forward in in our ability to provide flexible, patient centered care that 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 attracts people. Um, but I will say, you know, historically we have not been particularly good at retaining people long term on those on these treatments, uh, and that is partly a representation of again the current climate and and the drug supply and just the volatility um, that we're faced with. But partly a a, a represent, representation of the fact that our our guidance. Um, needed to be updated in order to better reflect the current realities and again we're really hopeful that that this represents a significant leap forward in just making these more effective appealing patient-centered medications um for for starting that treatment that treatment journey
1: sure now with increased uh, amounts of medication being put out is there a risk that that ends up on the street does that happen with methadone
6: so it i I, I won't say that it doesn't you know if you go if you if you go to for, for all of time, you'd be able to, to buy a variety of medications on the street. Um, um, uh, we know we know that, that you know, it's commonly called diversion. We know that that does happen with medications like methadone, but they're very, very carefully regulated um, um, for, for much of the stabilization period of somebody's of somebody's uh, treatment. They're having to go to the pharmacy every single day and, and take these in the pharmacy. So, so there are pretty significant limitations on, on the amount of methadone that 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 is released out there. Um, part of part of this guidance guidance is actually um, a, a really updated that though are recognizing that we really need to be thoughtful and cautious about making sure that you know methadone uh, does go to the people who need it because it, it can be harmful for somebody who, who's taking it, who is who's not used to taking methadone, but also trying to make um, treatment itself as 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 easy to participate in as possible, because as you can imagine, that can get really, really, uh, really labor intensive um, and such that it, it can actually drive people to drop out of treatment. So we're trying to strike a balance between public safety, but really patient-centered care and making these treatments um, as, as available and accessible as possible and allowing people to return to their lives when once they are participating in treatment and not having it dominate their, their, their day.
1: Yeah and I get that it just there seems to be this idea that uh in just by increasing more Output of these type of drugs, even though the intent is good, um, you know we we see this all the time where it's like we're going to treat a thing this way, and and it ends up you know being misused. That happens all the time. And of course, I know that there are the best intentions here, but is there like has there been pushback on this or concern that this could end up um, going the other way? You know, like prescribing higher and higher amounts until a person gets to that baseline which means that there's just more methadone being prescribed or more treatment drugs being prescribed and then more treatment drugs being abused. Um, I understand that getting off of opioids is a really complicated thing. But, um, yeah, has has there been significant pushback on that idea?
6: Um, So I I would say with regards to to these current guidelines and these medications, I'd say not really. Um, in general, I think most people have been pretty, pretty unanimously in support. At least that's the feedback that we've received, and they are aligned with with guidance that's gone out in Ontario as well that has been well received there. Um, the, the concerns that you're you're describing, um, as they as they relate to things like methadone and suboxone, which are these really long acting, mostly treatment oriented medications, those concerns are real and worth worth thinking about and considering. But they're not um, they're not it's not a, a Nearly as, as significant a concern or nearly as significant as part of the conversation as with, as with other approaches to try and um, reduce overdose deaths, um, like what we, what's often referred to as prescribed safer supply or prescribed hydromorphone programs, which really lie outside of sort of the conventional treatment World and, and these guidelines, but are a, a, a different approach that is being employed to try and um, reduce people's dependency on an un- unregulated and volatile drug supply. Those medications um, are, that, that's where a lot of that controversy is coming from.
1: Okay, well, it's very interesting, and I understand that, uh, that uh, you know, treating this is, a, a, like we were talking about, extremely complicated, and, you know, if these issues could be solved, uh, it, you know, with a, a simple one-pronged approach, that we would have solved them a long time ago. Um, Dr. Paxton Bach, he's the co-medical director for the BC Centre on Substance Use. Uh, thanks for the work that you're doing and trying to, you know, protect people who are struggling with this and to help people get off of opioids and opioid addiction. And uh, thanks for your time this morning as well. We appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. This is Mornings with Simi. We are talking about the downtown east side, an area that has been sort of a constant project that has improved, it has backslid, it has improved, it has backslid. People have come up with all sorts of ideas, thrown money at it. Businesses have moved there. They've left because of issues like crime. Uh, it's, It's a thing that needs to be addressed. If you've lived in Vancouver for any amount of time, you are aware of that. And yesterday, Vancouver City Council approved a new motion to try to uplift the downtown east side. And the motion was put forward by Vancouver City Councilor Rebecca Bly, and she joins us now. Good morning, Rebecca. How are you? Good morning, Scott. Great, thank you. So tell me about this motion that you have put forward. It's been approved now. What is this going to look like, this attempt to uplift the downtown east side? And, And what does that mean to you, uplift the downtown east side?
7: Yes. So the motion itself is, uh, as you say, uplifting the downtown east side and building inclusive communities that work for all residents. So it's really focusing on, um, you know, modernizing and improving the way that the city of Vancouver uh, works with partners and stakeholders in the downtown east side and outside of the downtown east side in order to deliver an increased supply of affordable social housing units as well as uh, more quality, livable, supportive housing units with a robust continuum of care resources, which we know is incredibly important when uh, considering um, uh, enabling more uh, supportive housing units um, anywhere in the city. It's got to be connected to services. Uh, And the motion also links housing outcomes to economic development, and, uh, that's a piece that's really been missing. And we heard loud and clear from many st- stakeholders across the community, the city, and the political spectrum that this has been a, a huge gap in any plan that's come forward in the downtown east side where we're just focusing on housing and we're not focusing on once folks are housed, what do they do? How do they connect to community? How do they um, connect to employment? How do they uh, have that level of empowerment or agency to get themselves back on their feet?
1: Okay. What would an uplifted downtown East side look like?
7: Yeah. I mean, I think what we would be seeing is, um, you know, uh, shop uh, storefronts that are have businesses in them that are um, offering a range of services and products, including low-cost food. Uh, uh, services there can be social enterprise. Um, um, there would be a, a less, I think, um, homelessness. Uh, people would have stability around their housing. Um, this is a lofty plan, and and, and I, these are not my words. People have sort of given it a, a quite a lot of. Um, sort of uh, emphasis in terms of potentially transformational. For me, bringing this motion forward was really about um, bringing the voices to the table that are already in the downtown east side, but really using the city of Vancouver's power to convene these groups uh, in a more coordinated way. Um, and at the same time, leveraging the work, the, the sort of renewed energy that we've seen in the last year from the provincial government um, to continue investing Time, resources um, and, and plans at the provincial level, and then, of course, federal funding to really improve the situation for, for those that are struggling uh, in the downtown east side, but at the same time recognizing homelessness is increasing across the region. We mm-hmm. saw that in the most recent count, uh, you know, two to three hundred percent in smaller communities outside of the city of Vancouver. So the pressure is only mounting. And so I think this regional approach to look at how do we increase the much needed shelter supportive houses and social housing units across the region. We need the province to really be leaning in here and seeing municipalities as partners in this. And I believe that they are. So the time is right to be more strategic and more coordinated in our efforts, but recognizing the city of Vancouver is not going to, Fix the downtown east side. Um, we are partners in this, and that's what the motion is outlining.
1: Yeah, and I like the way that you have um, sort of laid that out. The you know the, the I saw the headline as well. This is potentially transformational, and the way that you say like that, you know, this is a growing problem. It's not going to go away. Like, let's be realistic with our expectations here, um, and and talk about what. You know what a, a realistic, uplifted downtown east side looks like, and now I I love that this is happening, and that you know we're we're working on it because I think the worst thing that we could do is nothing. That's the worst thing yes. is just to sort of let it. Mm-hmm. But why? Because lots of people and lots of money has gotten thrown at these issues to try to make it better, and I don't think it's a money issue. Why is this plan going to succeed? or get get a better measure of success than previous ideas?
7: Um, yes, well, I don't have a crystal ball, so I can give this, uh, it's, it's sort of like best intention, which is to, I think the difference is we've got to look at this motion, this strategy and the staff work in, in what's different. So what's different about this is um, while we do have federal and provincial uh, partners at the table um, ready to invest, we have housing dollars that have not been there, In the past, um, we need to look at um, the city zoning or sorry, the zoning in the in the downtown east side. It's there's a there's a particular restriction around the zoning in an area in the DEOD, which um, that formula, given increasing construction costs and interest rates, doesn't work anymore. The projects are not penciling out, even with government uh, funding. Uh, it's, it's putting forth a right of first refusal bylaw. We've never had that before in the city of Vancouver. I put that forward uh, in my previous term with the Vancouver plan, but that allows the city to strategically identify sites that we would acquire being first in line to purchase those sites um, where affordable housing makes sense. And so that's different. And as I point out, um, really focusing in on the local economic development. And there are a ton of organizations and levers we can pull there uh, to make sure that we're building a community where people can both live and also work and also shop and also socialize. We know that connection and um, sort of oneness brings people together and it stabilizes folks in the most basic Uh, needs in order for people to step into um, whatever else is required for them to recover, whether it's mental health, uh, wellness, whether it's addiction. We know people in the downtown east side have never been so unwell than they are now. So as you said, doing nothing is a guaranteed uh, to make it worse, right? We have to be trying uh, new, uh, new approaches. And this is not, as I said, just something I've come up with I've met with folks in the downtown east side uh, for years um, actually and certainly more so in the last uh, six months and really coming to a consensus that this is what we need to do put politics aside we have a responsibility to take care of people and we have a responsibility to focus our attention to restore and uplift this area of our city Um, and so that's really what We're endeavoring here, and I'm going to stay with this process. It's not a motion that passes, and we'll see
1: what happens. The work starts now. Rebecca Bly is an ABC Vancouver City Councilor. Um, thank you for that. Thank you for talking with us about it, but also for the work that you're doing to because, like I like we say, doing nothing is the worst thing that we could do. And I agree with you wholeheartedly that connection is at the heart of this and how that gets fleshed out, like I know crystal ball, we don't know, but at least this is this is something, and it sounds like it has some great potential. So um best of luck with it, and uh, hopefully we'll get an update as things progress. and I appreciate your time this morning.
0: Thanks so much, Scott. Appreciate it. This is Mornings with Simi. This is a PSA. I have shingles. It is the worst thing I've ever gone through. And I've had three children.
1: That is the voice of Tamara Stanners. Perhaps you have seen her video on social media. It has absolutely gone viral and exploded uh, for good reason. It's a very she's talking about a very important cause, um, and it's in some ways a difficult video to look at. Um, it, she, Tamara has shingles, and uh, it's affecting her in a lot of ways. Potentially, she might lose her vision, and um, it, it's it's brought up for a lot of people the idea of shingles vaccine and this kind of overlooked thing. And uh, to sort of discuss it and help us kind of understand how important that is, Tamara joins us on the phone right now. Good morning, Tamara. How are you? Good morning. Well, I've definitely been better. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. So first off, like, I'm so sorry that you are going through this. It just looks awful. Um, Mm -hmm. But second, Thank you for sharing this, because anyone who's seen the video, I-, I can't imagine any other reaction than, oh, my gosh, this looks awful, and I really should do something to make sure that this doesn't happen to me and to my family members and my friends, because shingles is contagious. And I, you say in the video that 30% of us will get this.
0: Right. It's 30% of people who have had chickenpox will later get shingles and it can be contagious also to people who have never had chicken pox as well like it's it's just the craziest virus i can't can't believe really how it works it hides out in your spine after the chickenpox disappear until a stressor brings it out again um later in life it's, yeah it's, it's, it's Nasty.
1: For sure. And I, I actually have had shingles. Um oh, not, have. I have, yeah. Like not not nearly as severe as what you're experiencing, but I had chicken pox when I was really young mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. went through a actually a surgery and felt fine after and then started getting, you know, these little blisters and stuff like on my face and in my hair and went to the doctor like just to check up on the surgery. And he was like, What's what is this? And I was like, I don't know. But yeah. I, I think it's just like a, a very mild rash. And his first question question was like, did you have chicken pox? And I said, yeah. And he said, you have shingles. And, um, you know, so I got, uh, some information on the vaccine and got that and, you know, I'd already had it, but, um, yeah, it's just one of these sort of mysterious things. Can, can you tell us like, what's the experience been like for you? It looks pain. You say it's like the uh, most painful thing you've ever experienced.
0: Right. Well, I mean, I, uh, I mean, the way that it came on is really interesting. I, I'd had a fall, like it's, two weeks ago now that I slipped I on a frosty deck when I was going to light the barbecue and I, and I did fall and hurt myself, but I shook it off. You know, I thought I, I'm tough. I do Pilates. I do yoga. Right. I can handle this. Um, and so a week later when I started to get some shoulder and neck pain, that's what I thought it was. Uh, and I went to an osteopath who did some treatments and then it just got really progressively more painful last Friday. And I thought it was because of the osteopath, but Friday night when my face felt like it had fire ants, you know, just like crawling through it, trying oh. to burst out, and just like spike, like I felt like I had uh, burning spikes being <laughs> driven into my head, like every fifteen seconds. Like I thought I was dying. I honestly did. I I was so scared, and um, I actually wrote goodbye letters to all of my kids because I thought it was done for me. Oh my gosh! Um, yeah. So I was actually. <laughs> Relieved to find out it was shingles because I I do you know there was treatment available right away at the hospital, um, you know the painkillers don't work but to the extent that you'd like but still I, I know that this is something that I can work to heal with
1: you know proper diet and meditation you know doing all the right things but I was really scared. Yeah, it yeah. sure sounds like it, and mm-hmm. I mean you what. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but from the video, it sounds like we're not out of the woods yet. Like there's some vision loss right. concern?
0: Well, well, yeah, because uh, the blisters are all around my eye. So uh, that is a concern if it gets into your retina or cornea. And currently I'm fine. I'm just keeping it really, keeping my eye really clean. That's the most important part in um, trying to keep it from spreading into there.
1: So, so far my vision is good and I'm... I'm really working to keep it that way. Yeah. Okay. So what, uh, I mean, obviously the message is to get a shingles vaccine and you know, I'm in my forties and I sort of, I know for people that kind of view this as like, Oh, it's, that's something that happens later in life. But is that, I mean, we're learning like I've had it, you have it like that's not necessarily the case. And when can you get vaccinated? How does that whole process work? It's we don't we didn't push for the shingles vaccine like we pushed the covid vaccine and flu. shot. You know, like why? Why aren't people getting it? Why should we get it? And when does that happen? How's that process look?
0: Well, I mean, I'm I'm not an expert, but I do know you do have to be 50 to get it at uh, the drugstore and you can't just go to like. Um, You know, I think Shoppers Drug Mart, possibly London Drugs, make an appointment and get it there. It does cost and it costs a considerable amount of money, which I don't really understand. And I am not sure, but I I do believe that you can get a prescription from a doctor if you are younger to get it. But um, I'm not I I don't understand why there are the age restrictions, but because, again, not an expert, but I, I do Uh, I would really like to see the vaccine um, made free and available for everyone to make it easier because I know it doesn't affect everybody in the same way, you know, just like so many diseases, COVID obviously affected people in different ways, but um, if it can stop and like anybody else from having to go through what I'm going through, I, uh, I just think that it should be accessible to everybody.
1: Yeah. There's certainly some questions there about that. Like yeah. I, like I had it and I wasn't even 40 and, uh, Aww. I, you know, I, like you talk about the cost, why that is. So certainly some questions and hopefully conversations like this are like kind of help bring that about and bring it into light because, you know, we live in a modern society and we have this vaccine. So why aren't we administering it? And I mean, everyone I know has had chickenpox. It's not like that was a rare thing, you know, back in the, in the early eighties when I was born. So what does your, um, recovery look like from here?
0: You know, it's again, it's one of those really interesting viruses where they say it can take anywhere from two weeks to six six months, or <sighs> maybe you never recover. Um, like my sister had it twice, and she still has ongoing nerve pain that's never gone away. So, um, you know, it, it's it's just it's really a question that I, I, I can't answer. But I am going to do everything in my power to make sure that I, I heal as well as possible.
1: That's that's great. Well, I wish you all the best in the healing. You. And, um, you know, if you're not familiar, uh, Tamara puts on all sorts of wonderful music festivals, Constellation mm-hmm. Festival and and a bunch of others. And, you know, you do wonderful things for the community, like we kind of know each other and stuff. And um, mm-hmm. even this, I appreciate because it's, ha- it's making us have a conversation. And like I said, it's like not a, a comfortable video to watch, but it's an important important video to watch so i will link to it on my social media it's just at scott on air on all of the social medias and um do yourself a favor and have a watch and if you're concerned talk to your doctor and get some information and possibly get vaccinated thank you so much tamara i really appreciate the time this morning
0: thanks so much i really appreciate you sharing the message
3: this is mornings with simi